Welcome to the Boom Boom Performance Podcast, your resource for science-based training and nutrition, data-driven coaching, and education-focused content. Before we get into this podcast, I just want to say thank you for taking the time to listen and learn with me so that you can apply what you are about to learn, take my strategies, use these tools, and finally have some serious methods to see sustainable success with your physique, your mind, and your life. This podcast was built on the foundation of applied education, and I'm excited for you to be here so you can have that experience with me. Now, without any further ado, let's get on to the show. Today's guest is Dr. Mel Davis of RP Strength Renaissance Periodization. She has a PhD in neurobiology and behavior. Um, 10 years of research experience. She's been published and reviewed in multiple journals uh, in the scientific community. She's also a massive BJJ athlete. Like I'm talking like world champion status. Um, In fact, to quote this, IBJJF, master world champion. So she's literally a badass on top of being in the white coat, doing the lab, doing the research. Um, And she has a lot of really good information out there on behavior change um, and, and the way our brain works from a neuroscience perspective. And I actually went to Philadelphia to see her speak. I went to the RP Summit with uh, my good friends, Austin Kern and Matt McLeod. And she was the only one on stage that I actually wasn't super familiar with. And I didn't know what the talk was going to be about or what to expect. Um, because almost everybody else on the team, I've either heard speak or I've had them on the podcast. And when she spoke and she started diving into habit change and the addictive processes in our brain that works with success habits and how that addiction is actually very similar on a neuroscience basis, um, and just diving into all the weeds of habits and habit tracking and, and positive uh, changes in our life and how we can coach that in a practical setting, I was blown away, not only because there was real science tied to everything she was talking about, but also because it was extremely applicable and practical for many clients that I had. And it made me kind of have light bulb moments over the years of what has worked with me and why it's worked, what has worked with my clients and why that has worked, so on and so forth. So it's been, it was a really cool experience to see her talk, and it was an even better experience to have her on the podcast to basically go over her speech. So today we're going to dive deep into what the brain is doing and how to create successful habits that last and lead to the best results. And most importantly, how to practically apply that into a coaching relationship with either A, yourself, if you're striving for goals, or B, for your clients, if you are a coach listening to the show. So if you enjoy this show, please do me a huge favor, tag us both on Instagram by taking a screenshot of the show, heading over to Instagram, posting it on your story, and tag myself at Cody.BoomBoom and tag Mel at Regressive underscore Underload. We want to see who's listening. We want to thank you for listening, and we want to share it on our story. Now, without any further ado, let's get on to the interview. All right, cool. So um, as I was just telling you before we actually started recording is uh, I was out in Philly with two of my friends, Austin, Current, and Matt McLeod, and... I came there. Um, I've already heard James speak. I've had him on the podcast, read his book, really love the recovery stuff, but I knew what I was walking into. I've had Gabriella on the podcast. I've read a lot of her stuff, knew what I was coming into. I've heard, I've listened to every Mike Israel. Actually, I probably haven't because there's so many, <laughs> but I, I've heard that talk. So I, I knew what I was coming into and I didn't know much about you. So when you came on stage and you started speaking on habit change in this like idea of creating addictions to uh, positive habits and things like that. I was just like blown away. And it was, I took more notes in your, your presentation than anybody else. And it was just so unbelievably applicable. And what I was getting ready to say before I said, hold on, let me record, was that I think people jump to 
volume or um, external recovery modalities or like macro periodization, all these cool things. And their like foundation isn't even there yet. And their foundation is everything you talked about. So I'm really, really excited to have you on the podcast today because I want to dive into that and give people like, hey, before you start diving into the weeds, like let's layer this foundation before you build on it, right? Um, but before we do, we need you to introduce yourself. So um, who is Dr. Mel Davis? Uh, I am Dr. Mel Davis. Um, <laughs> I am a neuroscientist by training, but I've spent about the last 10 years um, hobby studying the scientific literature on sports science and nutrition and things like that. And I've been working with RP for six or seven years now, I think. Jeez. Um, so I've sort of taken uh, my science background and coupled it with my love for sports. I'm also a black belt in jujitsu, and I was very competitive for a long time. So I kind of married those two passions, and that's what I do now. I get to look at how nutrition and training can affect sport performance and aesthetic outcomes and stuff like that, too, for my clients. So, so what gave you the tie-in for like what your talk was about? Because your talk, uh, I believe it was actually titled, I have it written down here, was Overcoming Psychological Barriers. Um, right. What made you dive into that realm? Was it like experiences you were having with your clients? Was it your own personal journey? Like what made you go that route? Yeah, a bit of a combination. I think my neuroscience background, I'm really interested in behavior and that aspect of all of the diet and training stuff. And then on top of that, I was seeing so many people who really understood what they needed to do to lose weight or to gain muscle or whatever the goal was. Like they in detail know, you know, what kind of training they know all about MRV and how much volume and all of these details, but they just didn't know how to make themselves do the behaviors that were required to get the results. So they knew what they were supposed to do, but they couldn't get themselves to do it basically. So I got really interested in how can we increase our ability to work towards a goal and develop healthy habits that set up, set that kind of thing in motion. So what, what is that framework? I know this is like a really loaded question, but like, what is your advice to people listening or the people you work with? Um, because one thing that like I actually quoted you on was less than 50% of people who intend to begin healthier behaviors actually follow through. And then you started talking about this intention behavior gap. And I got to imagine that that's kind of this introduction for people that are, because I've been there too. When I first started, it was like, okay, like, What's the cool, sexy shit that everybody's talking about that I can read about and implement? And then all of a sudden, 30 days later, I'm, I'm still fat and not changing my life at all. Right. And I had to right, regress. Um, and I think I did. And this was actually really cool. I was listening to you. And I think some people listening will hear this is like, I started actually associating some of the things you were talking about with successes I've had in the past personally and with clients. And I didn't realize what I was doing. But it was because of these things you were talking about. So like going back to the general question, like what is this framework that you introduce with your clients to get them there? Yeah. So first really quick, the 50% statistic came from one review of a bunch of studies. So it's probably not a perfect statistics, but the fact that the review came up with that number gives you an idea of how often this happened. Right. And like you said, I think we all have, um, experience that where we get really motivated and really excited to make a change and we look up everything we need to know and then 30 days later we're like what happened so basically what I tell people I think the very first step before getting into the actual enactment is to look at how big of a jump you are making from your current behavior patterns and status like even if you were maybe super fit and trained a lot and counted your macros and meal prepped before like in the last year have you been really really far away from that and are you trying to jump all the way back in to that complete strictness and regiment um 
So just starting out thinking about how big of a jump your behavior will have to make for the goal you're looking at, and then maybe toning down that goal, I think is a really important first step before even jumping into the habit changes. So it's, it's, I mean, you're basically telling people what they don't want to hear. They have to commit for longer and then probably not strive for as big of a goal. Uh, well, so depending, like, I think if you're someone who counts your macros now, maybe you train like three days a week and you decide you want to lose some fat, you know, going on a diet and adding a couple more days a week training isn't a big jump for you, right? That's a reasonable thing. If you've been, you know, maybe your job, kids, things got in the way, you haven't been training more than like every other week you're eating fast food a lot, not paying attention to anything, and you want to jump into, you know, six days a week training and like perfect macros, that's kind of a big jump. And it's unlikely that you're going to sustain that past the first couple weeks. So taking a smaller step from there to begin with is a really good idea. So it's more of like just uh, the minimal effective dose, essentially. Right. Yeah. And kind of just looking at what kind of trade-offs and behavior changes and sacrifices you're able to make for longer than a couple of weeks. Got it. Okay. Um, what is this intention behavior gap? If we can kind of dive into that as well. So this is something everyone will kind of have a feeling that they understand because we've all been there, right? You're like, oh man, I'm going to get in such good shape for summer. I'm going on this vacation and I'm going to have like a six pack when I'm on this like boat on this vacation. I'm going to post all these Instagram photos. <laughs> and then, you know, like, spring passes and all of a sudden you're like two weeks away from your vacation you're like oh shit it never happened what do i do so that's the intention behavior gap you you want to do something new but your current habits are so ingrained that they take over because habits right you don't have to think about them so you get up every day and you eat whatever you usually eat and you don't have to think about it and that's much easier than intentionally doing something different so that's the gap is what you want and what your habits are. And if you can turn your habits into something that supports what you want, that's when you're most likely to have success. Do you feel like it's, it's like my mind goes in two ways. Like one, like do you have specific strategies that you actually have to implement to do this? And then two, because sometimes like there's no hacks, right? And I think sometimes it's like just having the conversation about what you're talking about in general kind of gives people a light bulb and awareness to be like, Oh, okay. I just have to like, think about this different. It's just my perspective towards it is a little bit off, um, which might rewire their goals, which we can get to in a sec. But do you think it's, are there actual hacks or strategies or is it just having this conversation? Um, I would call them strategies and not hacks because I feel like hack implies something that's a quick, easy route or a shortcut and there's no easy shortcut to making a new habit there's yeah. no quick way to make that happen really so i think that there are absolutely strategies i think the the first step is making sure your goal is realistic like we kind of talked about like a very specific realistic goal that you can conceptualize and measure and that is reasonable for the time frame you're thinking and then from there starting to identify what you know a lot of people if they're starting a diet they've started diets before right so you can think about what happened on your last diet, what messed you up, what was most likely to get in the way and start to kind of log those things and identify them. You know, maybe you have one friend who always talks you into like eating off diet, or maybe you have work dinners and every time you go to a work dinner, you just end up drinking a bunch of booze and overeating. Just identifying those things that have stopped you in the past. And I'm talking about this in 
the context of fat loss diets, but you can obviously apply it to any other aspect of training, nutrition, or life, you know, find the things that get in your way, write them down so you know what they are, and start making coping plans to change those, or get to get past those obstacles. Got it. Okay. So, um, and this is something that came pretty uh, prevalent to me, like why you were talking is so much revolves around awareness. And I think people almost avoid becoming self-aware of these things because it's not fun (laughs) yeah it's work and and it's not fun like writing out well here's all the things i screw up on or here's the reasons i'm being held back or here's the reason i'm not successful but if you're not aware of them you can't really course correct and move around them exactly yeah so um one thing i want to kind of dive into now is because now that we've kind of like set the tone of what we're going to be talking about is just like setting goals in general um and you had a whole like part of your presentation just about deciding on your goals. Um, And you talked about uh, deciding those based on like pressure or social or other people versus what you internally actually want and stuff like that. So I would love if you can kind of dive into uh, your thought process on that and how people can work around setting goals for the right reason, essentially. Absolutely. So there's been a bunch of literature to show that if you want, don't have kind of an internal drive for the goal, like it's not something you alone in your room by yourself want you're less likely to achieve it. So if it's something that you want just to show to other people, like I want to be buffed so that my friends at my CrossFit gym will like see me and think I'm buff. That's less likely to happen than if you're alone in your room and looking in the mirror and you're like, God, I wish I could look at myself right now just by myself and be buff. That would really satisfy me internally. So, and it's okay not if that's not the case, if that's not the case, that's totally fine. You just need to kind of think about, well, do I want to spend all my time working on a goal that's for other people when that very fact makes it less likely that I'll achieve it, right? So thinking about what you really want, what will make you happy and what point, I mean, there's sort of a um, a range, right? You can be fit, but not too crazy fit you can be somewhere in the middle where like it's very clear walking down the street anyone who saw you is like oh they're fit you can be psycho fit and stay like super lean all year and one of those spots or somewhere in between is going to make you happiest and you have to balance what where in the range you fall for your desires and where in the range of sacrifice you fall like what are you capable of what are you willing to give up and then sort of pick your ideal goal from there I I would love to hear if you agree with this. I think that people under sometimes understand what work has to be put in, but don't understand what sacrifices they have to make. Yeah, I think definitely, especially during this sort of early motivation phase when they're excited and they're like, yeah, I'm, I'm ready to work hard. I'm ready to do this. And like, yeah, it takes working hard, but sometimes the worst part is when you can't have a beer when all your friends are out having beers or you can't go out to dinner when all of your friends are going out to dinner and having cheesecake or whatever it is. Sometimes those things, the giving up is harder than the putting in, in a way. I get, I get kind of frustrated with it just because there's, there's a lot of people on social media now that are just genetic freaks. And so when they're posting pictures of them shredded with a burger and flexible dieting is the key and people completely right. forget the fact that a deficit is still needed. And it's not that you can't have those things in a deficit, but if you're not a genetic free who can eat a ton and still be lean, right. you're not going to fit a burger in your macros. And I think right. people are afraid to say what you're saying right now. Like there is a sacrifice associated with fat loss. And I think people get so tied into the, like the rah, rah and like the, the strategy that they completely forget that this is required. 
Yeah, and the sacrifice is going to be bigger for some people than others, like you said, and there's just no way around that. Some people are going to look better with less work, and if you want that, you have to put more in, and there's not too much you can do about that. And I think you touched on something else that's really important too, especially for coaches. I get a lot of clients who will send me a photo of like an Instagram fitness model or something. They're like, this is my body goal. And that's totally fine. You can have an ideal you're shooting for, but I think it's important, especially for clients who are kind of unaware and newer to fitness to understand that that's a snapshot. That's like a lot of those photos required a cut, a water cut, a bunch of salt manipulations, a spray tan, oil spray, perfect lighting. Some of them even maybe a little Photoshop tweak. Those pictures are very rarely what those athletes look like year round. And I think that people have sort of a misconception. They think a lot of these like gloriously lean and ripped CrossFit athletes or whatever are just like that 365. And they're really not, you know, during an off season, they're going to be eating more and recovering and a little fluffy and they're going to be suffering to cut down to get to a lower weight for whatever, you know, events they're competing in. So I think understanding the, um, what fitness looks like year round is rarely the photos that get posted on Instagram. So we, it's funny. I love, I love that you said that. Cause we, so we have, we're in the office section, but we have like a full gym. We do a lot of content here and we post pictures on social media. We take pictures of my training sessions all the time. Yeah. There's a reason why I'm rarely ever shirtless is because I'm not shredded year round. <laughs> like, <laughs> like usually like my arms look shredded and then the rest is just like, I'm an average guy. So it's like, yeah, but that's real. That's reality. Um, and it's actually funny. This is like complete. Well, it's not off topic, but it's kind of weird. I don't know if you remember this website, but I remember when I first got started, uh, simply shredded.com was like, yeah. I remember doing that exact what you were just talking about looking there and being like, that guy's like my height. And like, yeah, I could, I could, I could probably be. look that. Look like that all year. So, <laughs> this is actually good because this is something I was going to ask you, and this might be out of the scope of what we're talking about. But do you ever find that working with a client, we're trying to have this intention behavior gap, and we're trying to get them to understand the the habit and the behavior and the risk and or sacrifice and all these things, um, removing uh, some of these things that we do on a daily basis just to get rid of that comparison? Do you feel like that's almost needed? Because for me, it was like, I'm just going to stop looking at the site or I'm going to stop following these people on Instagram because right now I'm trying to work on me and this is not allowing me to focus on what actually, what makes me happy like you mentioned earlier. Yeah, I think it depends on the person, but I think for the majority of people, not focusing on those ideals or the those pictures or snapshots is a good idea just because when you're constantly looking people at people who are like, you know, 5% body fat for men or like 10% body fat for women, it's going to be hard for you to see your own progress or hard for you to feel good about where you are. So I think it's, it's probably a good idea, especially during, you know, like the hard phases of cuts or masses, just to cut that out, not look at anything else, look at your starting pictures and your progress pictures and your make graphs of your, no, you know, your weight changes or other sort of wins and losses you're having across the journey is, is a little bit healthier way to go about it for sure. And, it, and if you're in a mass, just look at your gym progress. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> and that's it. And I actually, I, we run into that with a lot of women, the, the people that my oh, team yeah. coaches is like, um, like I have some women that are like, Oh, I just need to lose a little bit more here. And I'm like, you're so lean right now. It's crazy. Like, <laughs> Let's do a mass phase. Like you should just build muscle. Like you'd feel better. You have any idea how fun, how much fun you're gonna have. Like yeah. Women especially, just because so few women have ever tried to gain weight. The first time they do a mass phase, it's emotionally stressful, but really, really fun. And I think a lot of women have 
they sort of just think if they just keep getting, they have this like, you know, ripped, like pretty jacked woman as their ideal body. And they just think like, if they just get lean enough, they'll look like that. And then they get really lean and they're like, oh, I'm kind of just skinny. What do I do? So I think encouraging women to mass, I think is great for so many reasons. I think that women spend spending some time focusing on what your body can do instead of what it looks like. Mm. And then as a side benefit, when you get to cut again, it's going to look even better anyway. So I think it's yeah. a really good like, psychological process for women, especially. I love the way you put that. Think about what your body can do instead of what it looks like. Because I, I think that's so important. And it just opens up like the macro thinking, like think long term, like right. in a year from now, if you do a full mass, and then you start cutting again in a year, year and a half, your cut will look way better. I know, like for me, yeah. eight, nine years ago, when I first, so my first whole thing was actually just trying to lose weight. And I had these images in my head and I lost weight. And I was like, I'm really skinny fat. Like I did like <laughs> circuit classes and low carb dieting. And I'm like, I don't look good. <laughs> like what <laughs> happened? And I had to learn that whole process as a man too. So everybody goes through it. Um, I think this is, that's super, super helpful for people listening. Um, when, we, when we talk about setting these goals and, and kind of this whole framework, like we're talking about right now, uh, you talked a lot about uh, specificity and having a timeline, measurable progress, all those things. Can you dive into what you advise there? Because I think for some people, uh, too much specificity causes like overwhelm. And then for other people, not enough specificity just call just just creates stagnant like they just don't go anywhere um so can you talk about like what you spoke about in your speech and like what you advise your clients to do yeah for sure i think in broad strokes it's a good idea to constrain big goals to about a year the human brain kind of has trouble conceptualizing past a year so thinking about like what you want to be in five years is oh you know it's so distant that it's fantasy basically so getting your big goals down to a year and then chunking small goals that lead up to that into like three months or so um, chunks is a good idea. Um, and then, wait, I forgot what you asked. <laughs> so basically just, and that's super helpful already because I think a lot of people, there was, a, and I think this was more business related, but there was a lot of people oh, that had this like three-year goal thing, you know, like where yeah. you're three years. And I think that's cool right, to right. have like a North Star. Um, but I'm very much similar. I'm like, hey, let's think about a year and then reverse engineer that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, specificity when was it? Right, right. Yeah. So I think that having a specific goal is a good idea, but giving yourself sort of a range around that. Cause you say, you know, like 0.5 to 1% of body weight loss per week is a pretty good pace for weight loss that minimizes your chances for muscle loss if you're lifting and is a sort of a tangible, good chunk to lose, um, satisfying chunk to lose every week. So if you give yourself that range, like 0.5 to 1%, and then what would the outcome be across 10 weeks or whatever, um, you can say, okay, that's 10 to 15 pounds. As long as I lose somewhere in there, I'll be good. And then track that as long as you're on average, on a decent pace, heading towards a goal that's within that 10 to 15 pound range or whatever it is for you personally. I think that tends to work really well for people. I think the worst idea is to make a super specific goal that requires absolute maximum adherence because it almost guarantees disappointment. And then even if you've lost an amazing amount of weight on your diet or gained an amazing amount of muscle or whatever it is, you're going to be disappointed because you set this like the most extreme goal possible. Do you, do you have a process of like setting this goal, creating or like a, a associating habits with that goal and then having some kind of like so I read ha uh, Atomic Habits not long ago, and this like whole habit stacking and habit tracker thing has just got me like 
on a different level with like how I structure my goals and like the way I build daily habits and stuff. Do you have any association with those things of like, here's your goal, here's the habits, here's how we're going to track it? Yeah. So I usually do that kind of on a client to client basis. So for example, if I have a client who's um, has a lot of weight to lose and they've struggled a lot with weight loss over time, I start them on like a maintenance diet and have them start tracking like when they get out of control with food and just basically graphing like, okay, you, you eat something on Friday and then you binge all weekend, right? So next time you do that, let's see if you can only binge through Saturday and just keep track of that and sort of take that as the wins, like working towards consistent habits of not binge eating and getting in their weekly exercise and stuff. And when that is pretty solid for them, like when that's a basic habit, then we move on to structuring the diet and maybe upping the volume of the trainer or whatever it is. Um, when the clients have sort of better habits, I do sort of less tracking of habit change and just have them tweak and report on how, you know, were they successful in making these small tweaks and on a weekly basis and then see if we can get from whatever 50% to 100% on those little tweaks over time. So I usually add it as just sort of a, a side project in the client's um, progress, like how are your habits changing? What are you working towards? Um, in terms of specific habit, sorry, I'll no, 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 keep going. I'll wait, keep going. In terms of specific habits, I usually have them, if they're adding a new behavior, I have them give me an exact, exact days and exact times that they're going to do it. And preferably rather than like just a specific time of day, like eight o'clock or whatever, um, something that they already always do on Tuesday, tacking it onto that. Like when I finish work, I go straight to the gym on Tuesday because it tends to be easier to incorporate a new behavior if it's associated with one that's already a habit. So that can be really helpful. And for people who, you know, are trying to add specific training days and a, a set schedule. This, that's the, that's the idea of habit stacking. That's what he talked about with that. Yeah. And I thought that was really, really cool. Um, I haven't actually read that yet, but I've heard about it a few times. So I'm going to have to pick it up. I, I did the audiobook. I'm just an audiobook guy. Cause I can just yeah. listen while I'm driving, but <laughs> it, it's funny. Cause I was actually talking about this on another podcast. I had been recommended it so many times and I didn't listen to it because in my mind, I was just stubborn to the fact like my habits are great. Like I, I'm good at this. I yeah. got routine, <laughs> I work out, I'm healthy. And then I was like, you know what? I'm going to give it a listen. And it helped me understand why my habits are great and how to communicate that to clients better, to others, um, yeah, sure. which is why I really liked your speech too. There were so many light bulbs going off when you were talking. I was like, this is why this works. And this is why I need to do more of that. Um, Okay, so cool. It, one thing I read in that book was something along the lines of um, dopamine and, and basically this whole idea of tracking habits and it becoming addictive of like, as I make these red X's on my calendar, as I do this habit, I have this reward feeling just like the negative one we get from Instagram when right. people like it. Um, is there and you talked a little bit about, um, I don't know if you brought up dopamine, but I remember you talking about like basically creating an addiction uh, to habits because habits and addiction are very similar um, inside mm -hmm. the brain. And I think that can be controversial because people who are addicted to drugs might argue. Right. But I also think that they maybe they haven't built the positive habits that could become that addiction, right? Because I know for me personally, there's some things in my life that I feel like I can't go without, like I have to do them. And they're very positive things, but like I'm addicted to that process of doing right. them and checking the boxes. So I'm just curious as to like the science behind that. 
yeah, so people have an issue with calling it addiction per se, but there's absolutely, in terms of brain structure and neurotransmitters that are involved, habit and addiction overlap a lot in similar brain structures and neurotransmitter use. Um, I think habit and addiction are definitely different, but the overlap, I think, is really important because you can see how um, automatic and cue-based they, they all are. So I think we can sort of take advantage of that because there's a, a massive research on how people become addicted to things, how they lose addiction. So we can take some of um, the information from that, like cues, like you were saying, habit stacking. So attaching things to already existent habits or giving yourself a cue, like setting alarms for certain things to remind yourself so that you have a, a cue association with the behavior can help sort of integrate it um, into your habits better. Um, there's also some really interesting research, and this is more related to fat loss stuff, but a combination of stress and caloric deficit can result in addictive behaviors regarding food. So you see people on the longer the diet is, the more stressed they are, right? And the bigger the caloric deficit. So the greater and greater chance you get this compulsive eating, like addictive behavior where you're eating food and you're full and you're eating more. So I think there's there's a lot of overlap in terms of brain structures and behaviors around eating, stress, food, habits, and addiction. And I think they're all independent but related and we can learn a lot from one about the other. I love that. Um, I think it just, again, it, it's, it's funny because it, it just goes back to all the things of like minimal effective dose, be patient, one thing at a time. Um, I'd probably block out a year and then maybe have like, you know, 12 to 16 week diet and then a maintenance phase, things that like don't just wear you out too much. Right. And it's all the things people don't want to hear. But I love the fact that there's like science proving that this is how the brain works and this is how the body works. Um, another uh, really interesting thing uh, that you brought up that I've always been curious about is willpower. Um, like, I think I want to say that you said willpower is not infinite. And I think this is another argument in that space of like people talk about like, I've even heard that like um, discipline and willpower to basically say no actually drains energy. Like it takes physical energy from There's the brain to say no to stop. For that, but it's controversial. Okay. So like, I, I'm really curious about all this because I think that um, no matter the fact that the, like the more willpower you have to use, I feel like the harder it gets to use it. Um, yeah. So what's going on with that? Yeah, so there's two camps in the in the willpower research realm, sort of. One camp that says willpower is finite, and one camp that says it's not. Um, one that says it can be trained, another that says it's genetic and not alterable. And I, I think from what I've read on both sides of the literature, it's something in between. I think it's more akin to the MRV concept, right? Um, so are your listeners familiar with that yeah, idea? Okay. For sure. So I think that willpower is more something that you might have a genetic ceiling for it, right? There might be like a maximum amount of willpower that you can get to, but you can still practice and sort of train your willpower. But at any given moment in any person's life, how much resources they have, whether that's actual, you know, energetic resources or just psychological resources are going to be limited. So there isn't anyone who can just change their entire life, all of their habits overnight. That just doesn't happen. So you need to allot the willpower resources you have, like the room in your willpower MRV that is available to you right now, 
to work towards your goals. If you have, you know, you're going through a divorce and, you know, your pet just died and your dad died and you got in an accident, you lost your house. Everyone knows that you're not going to run a good diet at that time, right? You're just, resources are too depleted to put your energy into um, changing your habits and working towards a goal. So I think that the willpower research is somewhere in between the two main camps and that it is it's a shifting thing that varies depending on an individual's situation, their genetics, and sort of where they are in their life. Got it. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. And I think like most things, it's kind of a gray area. Yeah. Right. And I won't say it's not like I think, okay, like I'm agreeing with you. I won't say it's not genetic, but I do agree with the fact that it's trainable because I think yeah. all these things you're talking about and as you build more habits and as you commit to doing more things on a regular basis, they just become more ingrained. And the more I think the more habits you have, the better your willpower is because those habits they kind of are like cemented in you, right? So when you have to have willpower to say no to something, it just becomes easier to say no. Like after right. a certain point in time, it's just a lot easier to have that willpower. Habits no longer use your willpower resources so you can use it for new habits and continue to grow. Because once it's a habit, you don't have to think about it. There's no, much less willpower involved when it's a habit. And then you have your willpower resources for other things. So yeah. So how, how many habits do you suggest like, trying to create at one time and how long does it take to make habits? I know like I remember a long time where there was like this 21 day thing where it was like it takes 21 days to ingrain a new habit. And I don't know where that came from or if that's even backed up by research, but I remember everybody saying that. So how many habits do you recommend people actually commit to, to implementing and then how long do they have to stick with something before it becomes like an actual habit? Yeah, how many habits I guess depends on how big of the habit change it is. If you're like just trying to floss and eat more veggies and like walk your dog one more time a day, you could probably do those all at once. But if you're trying to, you know, train for a marathon or something, that might be the only thing that you can start working on. So it just depends on the person and how much is going on in their life and how hard the habit will be to integrate, how different it is from their current habits, I think. Um, there was a second half of that question that so just uh how long it takes and i how guess long, yeah. like there might not even be a timeline to be honest like i mean obviously i read so i read a bunch of papers and a bunch of reviews to try to get an idea and the range tended to be two months to a year or more so wow. i so think 21 days is bullshit <laughs> 21 days is probably bullshit <laughs> Unless it's a really small habit. If you're just trying to floss every day, like 21 days might be doable. Like, um, I'm trying to think of another example. Uh, I, so I found out I had Hashimoto's this last summer and I got meds for that and you have to take them every morning. And that was one where I was so motivated to have the improvements from the medications that that habit was formed almost immediately. It was the first thing I thought of when I got up and it happened really fast, right? Um, but Another habit I've been trying to add to my life is making sure that I have fresh fruits and vegetables at every meal, which is a huge pain when you eat like five meals a day. So that's taken me a little longer because my, you know, it's, it's a harder thing. It requires doing something several times every day. Uh, so I think it, it really depends, but I think the takeaway from the two months to a year sort of range is that you shouldn't beat yourself up when you're trying to change your behavior and you're not perfect immediately, right? You 
unless you're a robot, there's a complete guarantee when you try to develop a new habit that you will mess up. And you'll probably mess up a bunch of times before it's perfect. So I think people tend to beat themselves up really easily over things like that. And the better choice is to track your progress towards perfection or towards near perfection instead of just being like, oh, I failed again. Oh, I failed again. You're not failing if your failures are shrinking over time. Mm, I like the way you put that. I think that um, this is actually perfect with one of the things I was going to ask you is just basically like before even starting a habit, um, either understanding why you were doing it or if that why is not big enough, maybe creating some kind of tracker. Because I know for me, like mobility is something that I've always known I've needed. Um, I had my second knee surgery in February. And so after rehab, I was like, okay, my left side is destroyed. I need to do this. So I set up like 31 boxes on my whiteboard. And for the month of December, I was like, I'm going to do this every morning. And because I was marking those X's, I did it every single day except Christmas. And that was just because I told my wife I wouldn't do any training or anything. I was like, (laughs) stay home and eat cookies with you. But when I did that, it was like spot on. I felt better. January 1st, didn't do it. January 2nd, didn't do it. Like literally like a week or two went by. And I was like, and I just started like, okay, I need to get back to mobility because when I didn't have those boxes, they check them. But I think that goes to say too, like my why, like, I want to have more range of motion in my knee. I want to move better, but I've always trained just to look better. Like it's just, I've never been somebody that's like, you know, really, I've actually done uh, Brazilian Jiu Jitsu as well. And I I couldn't do it because I had such little range of motion in my knee. I couldn't even sit on my heels. Um, So I had to like regress. I actually ended up doing Muay Thai and I stuck with that for a long time instead. (laughs) But um, that was just avoiding the issue. Um, But my point being is like my why wasn't big enough. So I had to create this habit tracker. Otherwise I wouldn't stick with it. So do you think like with clients, it's like, we have to establish one or the other. Like you have to have a really purposeful why or you have to have some kind of tracker that forces you to stay consistent. Yeah, I think even when you have a purposeful why, having the tracking is really, really helpful just because it's, you know, it's hard to, there's so many things in a given day that we all keep track of. It's hard to even know. Like if I didn't track how many days a week I trained jujitsu, I wouldn't be able to tell you exactly what I've done for the last month, you know, but I track how many days I have a goal of how many days a week I train how many times a day, whatever it is. And I cross those off and then I feel good when I do it right. And I feel bad when I do it wrong. And it's instructive, basically. It's it's easy to either look through rose colored goggles at the past and be like, I think I did a great job and be totally wrong. Or to look back and be like, man, I'm just failing and to also be totally wrong. So to really know what you're doing and if you're getting closer towards your goal, the only way is to track it. And I think people forget, you know, we do that automatically when we're tracking our weight, if we're trying to lose or gain, you know, we write that down, we want to know if it's moving in the right direction, do we need to tweak something to get it there? But we forget to do it for these more sort of esoteric goals, like, I want to be more mobile, or I want to eat more vegetables, we don't track those things, because we're not used to it, it's not uh, sort of a part of the ethos of fitness, but I think it should be. So yeah, I think I think the tracking is in particular really important. I think you should do it in every area of your life. I mean, yeah. I even do it for like, like leave my wife notes or like date nights in a certain period of time yeah. that I want to do. Like, cause if I have a tracker, I'm going to get that shit done. I think that's exactly. And I think it's cool because, and this is something uh, we do in our coaching business. I know RP does it as well. Um, but there was a long time where people almost like frowned upon tracking macros, tracking your weight too consistently. Cause it was like, Oh, that's overwhelming. You don't want to do that and stuff like that. But it, one, if you don't have data, you don't know what to adjust, yeah. right? And you don't know if you're moving forward. But there's a lot of research that shows 
the the people who successfully sustain weight loss are the people who oh, yeah. weigh in on a very frequent basis because they have that measurable and tangible accountability consistently or yeah, their food. Weighing is has been shown over and over and over again to be better for weight maintenance, weight loss maintenance for sure. And I think I think the fear is, and I get it, like there are people who get into a dysfunctional place where they're compulsively weighing, you know, like weighing themselves after they use the bathroom, weighing themselves at night, weighing themselves in the morning and this sort of dysfunctional compulsion. But I think if you lay down healthy habits um, in general for both during the diet and after the diet, it puts you in a better place to not get dysfunctional. So to explain what I mean better, I think some people will start a diet and maybe they'll just like cut out a huge food group and do some weird thing. Like I eat, like I don't eat till one o'clock and I have only like tuna and nuts or, you know, some weird unsustainable diet and they lose the weight. Right. And then they pop back to maintenance and they go back to their old habits and they gain a bunch of weight and they get in this place where they're up and down and they get compulsive and stressed and it feels like nothing's working and they're trying to tighten it up more and tighten it up more to get to a place where it works and they end up just being super dysfunctional food becomes good or bad and it's associated with guilt and all these things and I think if you have basic foundational healthy habits you go from diet to maintenance and like maintenance is more of the same with a couple treats here and there you don't have like these guilt cycles and these sort of um, dysfunctional relationships with food and training and fitness and stuff. And I think when you're in that place, weighing daily is not a stressful thing or it doesn't become a compulsion. It doesn't become so dysfunctional. Yeah. And I, I will also add to like when you do those frequent weigh-ins, you'll have more realistic averages because we know like if I had too much salt last night or didn't sleep or have any reason my weight would fluctuate and I step on the scale the one time a week, my one weigh-in Right. Pissed because it's two pounds up. Yeah. And you panic. Um, But I think that's a really, really good point. I think just tracking in general was kind of frowned upon for a while. But if we look at the most successful people, it's somewhere in there. And I always use money analogy. Like if you're growing a business and like a financial advisor approach, you is like, okay, well, what's what's coming in? What's going out right now? I don't know. Yeah. Like, well, how are we gonna? (laughs) It doesn't make sense. Um, Okay. So cool. So uh, another thing you talked about was um, avoiding. procrastination or productive procrastination yeah can you can you tie us in on that and, and what you mean by that because I think that was something super applicable to people just because people jump into things all in and they want to add all these things in and it's just it's just too much or like unrealistic amount of habits at once right yeah so productive procrastination is probably my favorite kind of procrastination I find myself this is probably one of my biggest pitfall, pitfalls like even a non- fitness example, like working on a book for work, like, okay, I'm going to write this book. But first, I need to, you know, read these reviews, and I read the reviews. And then I like, click on the reviews that cited those reviews. And I just get in this tunnel of like, reading and reading and reading when really, I need to write down a framework for my book based on what I know. And then if there's things that are unclear that I don't have a good conclusion on, I can go in and dive into that research in depth. Or if there's anything that's controversial or has conflicting research, I can dive into that. So just to give an example there, or people who are like, I'm going to I'm gonna run a marathon and they buy a bunch of books on marathon running. They buy a bunch of shoes and like supplements and goo packets and like icy hot things and just sort of spend all this time preparing but not actually doing or changing any habits when a better idea would be just like, I'm going to run a couple times a week and make that a habit and then I'm going to work up and then maybe I'll figure out 
I need a different kind of shoes because I have high arches and they hurt, or whatever it is, sort of doing those detail tweaks as you're working into the new habits is a better idea than trying to outline every massive like detail or in-depth detail before you even start. Well, I think a lot of those things get added in or adjusted as like after you take yeah. action, right? Because there's so many things you learn along the way, but a lot of times you don't learn them until you start doing things. Yeah. It, like for the sh- like the marathon, you'll probably know what kind of shoes you need after you start fucking running. Right, exactly. <laughs> you know? Exactly. Um, you might buy your like fancy whatever shoes that you saw on a famous marathoner and you have wide feet and it's going to crush your toes and you just spent $80 on a pair of shoes you didn't know didn't work for you because you don't run yet kind of thing. Yeah, 100%. So um, I think that's huge. And I think it just goes into the aspect of um, kind of educating a client, creating structure and, and systems and like these habit trackers, everything we're talking about is really just like, I, I love the way we're talking about this because it's taking the science and actually putting it in an applicable manner versus just like, oh, here's what I'll like, because some people, there's people who live in the research and there's no experience. So it's all just, here's what all the studies say. And then it's like, well, what have you seen in your clients? It's like, I don't have clients. Right. <laughs> oh, Okay, so I think it's I think it's totally different, and so it, it's so independent to per, depending on the person because everybody yeah. forms habits differently. Everybody can handle a different amount of habits differently, or everybody responds to the, to even this conversation differently. Right. Yeah. Yeah, and you'll find clients respond to a lot of things. Like if you've had a lot of clients, as you and a lot of your listeners probably know, there's a huge range of how people respond to things. Some people need, you know the non-sugar-coated cold hard truth some people need like a soft approach and I think it's the same thing for habit change and choosing goals and um, structuring diet and training even it's it's going to need to be individualized for best results do you think there's uh any like merit to giving a reward to these kind of habits like after you do x amount of days or after you do x amount of tasks you get blank is there any evidence that shows like that's a positive way to ingrain these habits yeah, I think that's that's definitely a good idea. I think people like a lot of women will do, you know, like the end of the diet, they'll do like a photo shoot or something like that. And I think those kind of things are are great. I think it's good to celebrate when you've reached a goal or a milestone in your progress towards your goal, however that may be. I think it's probably a bad idea to do like a goal or a reward for the end of a diet is, you know, like Chinese buffet and cheesecake or whatever, because that, that ends up being counterproductive, but maybe to be able to go out and have like one special treat or something like that, but to, to, to make the reward separate, um, in a separate genre from the goal, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Like if it was a food related goal, don't give a food reward. If it was a training related goal, don't make it a like lay around lazy reward, make it a separate, um, separate thing. Well, we all know that people, and I did this, uh, you, you do a physique competition or a bodybuilding show and you already have the cookies in your pantry oh, waiting yeah. of like, you like stocked up during your prep of like, <laughs> Oreos came out with those new like pumpkin swirl flavors right, right. <laughs> and it's just like stocking up and then people just blow up after their show. Yeah. Yeah. I think, yeah, that happens in bodybuilding and stuff a lot, especially people new to it. I think that the diets they do are so long and so hard that they get to that point that we were talking about where it's like food, uh, addictive behaviors around food and just like compulsive eating. And, you know, you'll like 
you'll get to the end of your diet and you'll taste these things you're looking forward to much and they're not even that great but you just eat them anyway because you couldn't before Mm -hmm. and yeah I think that can can become really dysfunctional but there's also nothing wrong with like having stupid ridiculous foods that you love and like letting yourself indulge in those every once in a while you know I always try to encourage people to keep it outside the house. Cause like for me, so for yeah. me, that's sushi. And when I say sushi, I don't mean the healthy kind. I mean like the deep fried cream. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so you can't make that at home. So for me, it's like, I go, I have my plate of sushi. Yeah. Cause I can, I can, can find, I can order with mindfulness, but I can't eat with mindfulness. So it's like, I'm going to order right. this. And once it's there, it's done. I'm it's gone. going home. Yeah. But if there's something in the pantry, I can just keep doing it for sure um and then the other side of the question was going to be about accountability like how important is accountability of all these things because i i read this one thing that showed basically um i want to say it said you're 42 percent more likely to achieve a goal if you write it down and then that increases to like 95 percent if you actually have some kind of accountability so who knows what these tangible numbers really are but the point being is like you have to write it down if you want to do it and, and you are way more likely to do it if you have some kind of accountability yeah Completely. I don't know about anything about exact statistics, but I knew I do know that having social support when working towards a goal is a huge, huge factor. Um, it's a huge factor in everything, actually. It's longevity, um, perceived happiness and life, things like that. So having social support and people who hold you accountable is just, in general, a good life plan. But um, yeah, I think a lot of people struggle with that. There's sort of a subset of people who deal with you know, the kind of social pressures where they're sort of shamed for being on a diet, like you're already fit, why do you want to bother with this? And they're made to feel bad for wanting the things they want. There's other people who just sort of want to pressure you into like going out and having fun with them. And they don't like it when you're not drinking and eating because you can't do all the things they're used to doing with you. And I think in those cases, getting their social social support is just a matter of, you know, sitting down with a friend looking in their eyes and being like, I have a goal. It's important to me. It matters a lot to me that you support me in this. Can you do that? And there's very few people for whom or who will hear that and not support you, right? Most of your friends, even if they're used to giving you shit and they normally would bug you about things like that, if you sit down and tell them how important it is to you and request their support, most people will be cool and they'll they'll help you out. They might even switch their teasing to, you know, a productive teasing, like, oh, are you allowed to have French fries right now? Which can be helpful, um, more so than have some French fries, have some French fries, have some yeah. French fries. I think it's funny, actually, how, I mean, it's not funny, it's horrible, but how uh, people are almost afraid to have that conversation, even though the outcome is usually positive. Because I even remember for me, like way back, like, and I like when I first started my like weight loss journey, I was like 19. So I was like, I was at a period of time where like my friends absolutely would give me shit. Right. Working <laughs> towards my goals. Uh, or I mean, if I wasn't participating in pizza. Right. And the stuff that, yeah. And I would like just be afraid to have the conversation. I'm like, oh, they're going to give me even more shit. And it's like when I like just was like, hey, like, dude, like this is like, I really don't like where I'm at. And like, I'm really trying to make a positive change. It, they were all like, dude, of course, I got you. Even and it I was never know. like, oh, <laughs> I should have started trying to lose weight six months ago, but I didn't because <laughs> I just <laughs> given in, you know? So I think that's super important. And uh, people are just in general, just kind of afraid yeah. to to have that conversation in general. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it's a vulnerable position to be like, I don't like something about myself and I want to change yeah. it. You know, saying that out loud is vulnerable. And, uh, and also it's vulnerable because if you fail, then you have all these people that know that you failed. If you didn't tell them that you were dieting or working towards something, then no one knows you failed. So, 
um, that's a, the other edge of that sword, but it, it's motivating to have that. I was going to say, it's kind of uh, like that fear-based motivation. It's kind of an accountability of like, well, shit, I told these people I was going to do this. Yeah, I got to do it. I, yeah, I got to do it. Um, I think that's super helpful. There was there was a couple other things I wanted to kind of cover with you today. And one of them was um, habit replacing. So you talked about like replacing bad habits with good habits. Do you think it's literally a matter of like, I do this and I don't want to do it anymore. So I'm going to do this instead. Or is it just a matter of like, I'm just going to start doing these good things and these bad habits are going to kind of fade away? Um, yeah, I guess it depends. It's, it's, if you have a bad habit, it's often easier to replace it with a related good habit than it is to just eliminate it by itself. So I think that, um, that can be a really good idea. Like, for example, maybe you have a habit of, you know, every night you sit down with your husband or wife and you have like a beer or a glass of wine. And that's like your wind down thing that you do every night. So rather than just eliminating the alcohol and sitting there with them, you know, replacing it with a tea or something like that makes it easier to get rid of the previous habit than if you didn't have a replacement. Got it. Okay. And I think that's good. Like this is actually something I took away from PN years ago is they were really big on just, just adding, like, instead of being restrictive, like let's add new things. And it kind of ties into that. I think this gives a little bit more context to like how you can actually remove the bad things. Cause at some point you have to acknowledge that there's still bad things there. Um, but in general, as we add good habits, typically things kind of fade away. Um, and the last thing I wanted to bring up is like um, how you, you talked about like habits defining you and, and mm -hmm. maybe not letting them define you. Can you give an example of that and like why that's important? Yeah. So basically, I think your um, habits are very tied to self-identity. And I, I have a, an anecdotal story that I think demonstrates this really well. I was talking about this at a um, seminar in Canada and this really huge jacked lean dude raised his hand and he was like, he's like, man, I used to tell people, I used to be really overweight and I told everyone I was a happy fat guy. And I just said that all the time. And he's like, I wasn't happy though. Like when I look back, I was unhappy and I wanted to lose weight. But because I told people for so long that I was a happy fat guy, losing weight had another obstacle. And that was admitting to everyone around me that I had been lying about that and pretending to be happy all that time. When they saw me lose weight, they would realize that. And that was, you know, my identity I'd created for myself as a cover for the change that I wanted was actually inhibiting the progress and the goal. So be careful how you define yourself, because there's actually good data to, to support the things you say about yourself um, tend to manifest basically in your, in your actions and what you actually do. That's, that's deep. Like you really have to, like, and I think that's why people are, you should, I always encourage people to journal and, and meditate and do things that just get you to kind of like reflect on yourself yeah. introspect, and just understand why you act the way you do say the things you do. You even gave a really simple example of like, I think it was like chocolate is my weakness, but right. Like the more you say chocolate is your weakness, the more that will literally become your weakness. The more it makes it totally okay for you to have chocolate when you see it, if, even if you're not supposed to, because you're like, well, I'm really good at a lot of things, but chocolate's my weakness. So it's like almost an excuse to do the thing you are not supposed to be doing at a specific time. It's kind of like a cheat day mentality. I mean, I remember I used to have like Saturdays were my cheat day and it was almost just like, well, fuck, today's my cheat day. So I have to like, I right. have to get the most out of it. Yeah. And it's almost to a point where like, well, I'm not really hungry, but my cheat day, I'm not going to like yeah. not utilize my cheat day. And then it just gets out of hand. And really right. you just make your weekly caloric 
deficit into a surplus and you're just, (laughs) um, so cool. I I think, uh, everything we talked about today is like very, very simple. Um, but I love that it's actually backed by science and it's, it's super applicable. It's not, it's not overly complex, but all the cool complex shit that we all want to do, this makes that stuff possible. Right. right? Like I actually posted on Instagram today. It was like a, a pyramid. And I mean, everybody has like pyramids. There's one in the RP diet. There's one in the muscle strength pyramids, but they're really good way of like showing a hierarchy. And I had like different behaviors in each one. So it wasn't just nutrition or training. It was like, uh, it was like lifestyle and environment. Then it was habit and behaviors. And then it was movement and food quality. And then it was calories and macros. And then it was mealtime and stuff. So it's like, before yeah, that's kind of like the, <laughs> if the pyramid is a, an iceberg, those are all the things underneath. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And that's a really good graphic as well. And it's just to say, like, before we periodize your macros and your training, before you start adding supplements or worry about nutrient timing, like, these things will make all that stuff not only more effective, but way more possible. Yeah, yeah. And just easier, just less mm-hmm. stressful. Yeah. So, um, cool. Do you have anything else that you feel like I didn't touch on based on like this whole topic that you, you think it will be applicable or did we get it all? Um, I think we went, we went over pretty much all of it, at least touched on everything. I think that I think is, uh, critical to sort of enacting it in your, your life. So love it. Thank you so much for your time and, uh, make sure you're so like Instagram website, all that stuff, like anything you have out right now, I know you just dropped like a massive game changers review which i know my people will be really interested in so everything that you just dropped uh, and then like where people can find you so they can get more of your content yeah for sure so um i am a coach at rp strength so rpstrength.com you can find me there um that's also where you can find my ridiculous 60 page blog critiquing the game changers in their um blog section um instagram i'm regressive underload and there's an underscore between the words um and you're welcome to DM me there or follow me for some science posts and stupid memes. <laughs> you guys as a team do really good at that. <laughs> like science meme, science meme. Um, cool. I'm going to link all that in the show notes to make sure everybody can catch, awesome. uh, check out your stuff. Guys, I can't rec- recommend it enough. Like I said, I went to the, the RP Summit in uh, Philadelphia and by far my favorite speech out of all of them. And that's saying a lot because you guys' team is really impressive. So um, go check your stuff out. And uh, once again, thank you for coming on. Awesome. Thank you for having me. I had a good time. Before I let you go, I just want to say thanks. I seriously appreciate you spending this last hour or so with me, educating yourself to get better results. It still humbles me to this day that people around the world literally have me in their headphones or their speakers just to learn. It's so empowering. And because of that, I have three quick things for you. The first one is a personal favor. Please leave me a five-star rating and review on iTunes. When you do this, not only does it help me learn and get better at making podcasts for you to get better results, but it helps us grow inside of iTunes, which allows us to invest more, again, to get you better results. The second thing, head over to boomboomformance.com sign dash up or click the link in the show notes to get your free copy of the Nutrition Hierarchy. This is everything you need to know about nutrition to change your body composition or performance inside of a manual. I take the leading evidence inside of research and all the principles, methods, and tools based on some of the top professionals in the industry, and I put them all in a book so you can learn more about your nutrition and get better results. The third thing, this is a personal invitation to shoot me a DM on Instagram or email me at cody at boomboomperformance.com. I will help you troubleshoot anything you need. This is literally an invitation to jump in my inbox and ask me anything you want and let me help you. All right, guys, that's all I got for you this time. I appreciate you being here, and I'll see you next time.